Did you know I wrote a book with Cassandra Snow? It's true! Lessons from the Empress is coming out October 1st, 2022 from Wiser Books. Lessons from the Empress is a tarot workbook for creativity and self-care. Self-expression and self-exploration are essential for living a fulfilling life, and the tarot allows for an incredible opportunity for creative exploration. Using the Empress, who is an archetype of creation and abundance, as a metaphor for the journey, Lessons from the Empress takes readers on a journey through the tarot using easy-to-follow magical rituals, tarot spreads, and creativity exercises in a way that will empower you to embrace your true self and express that self to the world. You can pre-order the book anywhere books are sold, and just to make things easy, I've included a link to my uh, bookshop.org shop in the show notes. Happy reading! Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Welcome back. Have you had a weird week? Me too. I wanted to talk about a couple things at the top of this episode that have been on my mind. With the book coming out, I've been thinking a lot more about the future books I want to write and what resources are already out there. I've gone through a lot of different phases of learning in my own path. I've been part of a coven, fully solitary, a teacher of solitary witches, a student of folk magic, and now I'm easing into a new phase and way of learning. I've been in a fallow year, just listening deeply to my own beliefs and leaning into how I want to show up as a magician, if at all. More about taking a fallow year later, but a part of it has actually been an unintentional pause on reading magical texts and books about the occult. I mean... I mean, I've read my books for my Patreon club, but I usually have, like, two books going outside of that just focused on the occult. I've mostly been doing this because I want to develop my own relationship with tarot, runes, magic, etc. Basically, I've been focusing more on personal gnosis than on any kind of research. I realized that, yes, I do cite my sources on this podcast as I'm writing about the runes, But those sources are kind of old at this point. A lot of what I share in this podcast is information developed through an animus relationship with the runes. We have conversations. I go into trance with the runes. It's not logical um, or as highly researched as I would usually like to be. All of this to say, I want you to also have a personal animist relationship with the runes. Here's the thing about the occult. When it comes down to it, it's all someone's personal gnosis and relationships. No matter how traditional your practice, that tradition came from somewhere, and it was likely just a weird mystic who made shit up. Which is incredible when you think about it. Society is basically all just made-up shit. 
humans are so creative. We create all of these structures to help us understand the world and one another. And that is so beautiful. I am a firm believer in the power of stories to help us build spiritual, social, and magical practices. It's a part of why I am so enchanted with the study of folklore. These stories crop up in cultures around the world, and they eventually repeat and repeat until the characters in them become archetypes. And those archetypes take shape and become spirits in their own right. When I work with tarot, I feel like I'm working very directly with these archetypes. <clears throat> the runes have their own archetypes, but they are much less human than the archetypes of tarot. Engaging with story in this way has been deeply fulfilling to me and is an ongoing process. And now, as I'm re-examining my own practices, I'm looking for input once again. All of this is really just a love letter to books, to the people who are brave enough to share their practices with the world, to people that I feel comfortable talking about my own weird practices with. So thank you. It's a very fortuitous thing, and not at all planned, actually that this episode should release the same week as Maven. This week, I'm talking about Yara. Yara is a very gentle rune to come after the first three runes of this eight. This is the reward for doing the hard work of the Hagalas, Nauthis, Isa. Yara represents harvest, the year and passage of time, <clears throat> and also harvest festivals. The Anglo-Saxon rune poem refers to summer as joyful, a time of light and happiness. To me, Yara is not just about the year, but it is related to earth itself. This is a rune of appreciation of the gifts of nature, as well as of cultivation. The shape of the rune, two Vs turned on their side and intertwining, speaks to me of cycles. It is strangely reminiscent of the astrological symbol for cancer, with a mirror image turning on itself. This has always spoken to me of the cycles and seasons that recur year after year, the patterns within a set of bounded time. There are several points in the year that Yara can relate to, and I usually relate with either Midsommar or Yule. But given the time of year I'm writing this in, I want to talk first about fall harvest festivals. For many pagans around the world, the most important of these harvest festivals is, of course, Mabin. This is a part of the Wiccan Wheel of the Year, though many people who are pagan, um, but who celebrate, but though, eh. this is a part of the Wiccan Wheel of the Year, though there are many people who are pagan and celebrate Mabin without being Wiccan. The Eight Sabbaths is not exactly a closed practice. Anyway, Mabin happens around the fall equinox and singles, signals a time of celebration of the harvest. The name is Welsh in origin, coming either from the Mabinogion or the name of a Welsh hero. It translates to something like divine sun, as in son of Mother Earth. It's not a holiday that I typically celebrate. It's pretty Celtic in origin. And I've been so focused on my Norse ancestry that I haven't really been celebrating the more common pagan holidays. But this year, honestly, it feels right to celebrate it. For one thing, I've been feeling like I really need community. For another, holidays are fun. More holidays for everyone, please. A bit of a tangent, but hear me out. Lately, I've been thinking about how very small Europe is and how often people traveled or encountered other cultures. This is especially true of Nordic people in the Viking era. They were all over Europe. 
Granted, they were not exactly welcomed into communities, but there was, in general, a lot of trading that happened that wasn't just Viking raiding and pillaging. A lot of these harvest holidays happened around the same time, and perhaps traditions traveled, and people definitely influenced one another. Who's to say that it's completely inappropriate for a Norse practitioner to celebrate Mabin, especially if they're in community with other pagans, and especially if they are, you know, Scottish Nordic or Irish Nordic. Um, There were a lot of Norse people who lived in um, this area. So Yule, Beltane, Midsommar, Mabin, and Samhain are so ingrained in general pagan culture that they don't feel as culturally specific anymore. Um, Although I know that there are definitely people who do very intensely focus on them as more so Celtic holidays. Um, I'm not saying this to say that like it's completely appropriate for everybody to celebrate Mabin, but I do think that because Wicca has, you know, taken some of these holidays in under its wing and Wicca is um, such a common and mainstream pagan religion that I think if you're seeking pagan community, it makes sense to uh, go to some of these celebrations, even though they're not necessarily Norse in nature. Of course, there are Norse-specific harvest festivals. There are three of them, in fact. Many heathens in my personal, like, my area, uh, recognize the three harvests. The first comes in the summer and is the grain harvest. This is also known as haymaking hay-making season and usually began around July 10th. The second is around this time of year and is called the fruit harvest. This fruit also includes vegetables. I know from experience that this includes a lot of canning and saving and preparing vegetables for the winter seasons. Then finally in November comes the meat harvest. This is when a lot of hunting and slaughtering happens And in Minnesota and the U.S. more generally, this is uh, deer hunting season. Looking at this, I see a bit of consistency with the more Wiccan slash generally pagan Wheel of the Year holidays of Lamas, correlating to haymaking season, and Maven, coordinating with the fruit harvest. They come at different times because of the different climates, but the spirit is remarkably similar. There is a constancy to Yera because of the way it represents a full year. This means it also represents the full spectrum of the growing season, including the time when the earth is resting in winter. Midsummer is a time when you're working with all aspects of the growing season. There are some things that are ready to be harvested, at least here in Minnesota, that's when we're harvesting blueberries and some early vegetables, but farmers are also planting and tending to crops that are already planted. But this whole This whole season of the podcast is based around an underworld journey, a view of the runes from beneath, from deep within the roots of Yggdrasil. What are the lessons of Yera when we turn it on its head? The first aspect of an underworld Yera is decomposition. In order to harvest, you have to have fertile soil to nourish your plants over the years. Decomposition is another way of getting back to the root of something. Through this practice, they, through this process, things rot and decay. It can also be explained as the process of breaking down organic material to its constituent parts. 
plants, animals, any other organic matter, it all breaks down to its most base elements. Decomposition is the process through which nutrients return to the soil. Another underworld aspect of Yera is the concept of a fallow year. So farmers know that it's important for soil health to rotate your crops and to sometimes leave fields fallow for a year. Of course, this goes against our contemporary capitalist ethic of constant growth. Sometimes you need to leave things undone, even if there's potential, even if you don't want to. A fallow year for a creative is just a year where you don't start or commit to anything. It may be a year of ending things, but you aren't supposed to really work on starting anything. You're leaving your creative field fallow. It was around August of last year when a mentor of mine told me she thinks I needed to take a fallow year. Part of why I needed to take this year was that I was having a hard time finding my own voice. There were some things that I had committed to, of course, one of those being lessons from the Empress, but I had a partner in that and a specific deadline. I was wrapping up what turned out to be the last year of the witchcraft immersion. I had the seeds of a novel rattling around in my head, but I couldn't focus on it. I had just opened the Northern Lights Apothecary, which would fold by the spring. I had too many ideas, but little to no sense of what I actually wanted to do with them or which ideas I wanted to pursue. I resisted the idea of a fallow year. I knew that I was hurtling toward burnout and that if I didn't do anything about it, it would be detrimental to my creative life. I was existing solely off of income for my business. When I'm not releasing things constantly, I get really anxious. There's a specific dread that I won't be able to maintain my income without reeling in new clients with something. Of course, in a fallow year, I have had to confront this. I ended up taking on more day jobs, but the stability is starting to finally heal my burnout from years of self-reliance and honestly not having enough. But here's the thing that people don't understand about creatives. We need space. We need so much space to do nothing or take in art produced by other people or to foster relationships. Art comes from somewhere and you can't draw on an empty well. A fallow year allows space for you to nourish yourself as a creative person. You need to nourish the soil of your mind so that it stays fertile. Reading good books, bad books, books that are only okay. Going to art shows, to that shitty house party, going to the local dive bar for karaoke. Take yourself on an art date and go to a museum. All of these things are absolutely necessary for your creative growth, and they don't look like doing the work. Here's the other lesson from my fallow year. We are not here to labor. This is something that I've thought a lot about over the years, but it didn't really strike true for me until this year. I've always been a very busy person. I like to stay busy. If I don't have enough going on, I feel like there's something missing and I try to fill it. But this year I remembered that the things I do to fill my time don't need to be work. I don't need to be producing all the time. Instead, sometimes being a creative means getting bored. Sometimes you just need to take some distance. There can only be a harvest if we allow for our fields to be fallow once in a while. In order to keep the system as a whole healthy, it's important to allow things to rest. There's another metaphor about decomposition and nourishment in the underworld here. The underworld is here to 
is where we go to decompose. It is our final resting place where our bodies are returned to the earth. Decomposition is that thing that ultimately allows for nutrients to be carried to the plants, fungi, and ultimately into the animal and human kingdom. And here I'm going to evoke the image of a bureaucratic death god once again. This is a place where things are ultimately sorted. Perhaps I'm stretching the metaphor a bit. Perhaps our human understandings of the death deity as being bureaucratic and business-like are just to soothe our strange little minds. We like order, we like patterns, and it's easier in some ways to conceive of a bureaucratic death god than it is to embrace the messiness and uneven nature of decay and rot. But even in that decay and rot, everything happens the way it's supposed to. We are broken back down into our base materials. Coming back up from the underworld, Yera is a rune of ecological harmony. It is the joy of rebirth, that same joy that comes every springtime. Yera asks us how we can be in a better harmony with the land. Yes, this is a harvest rune, but practitioners agree that it is a rune of slow growth. This is the kind of growth and harvest that comes from working with natural cycles rather than against them. We have such an intense attitude of progress, of making things happen faster and faster, that to slow down and actually align yourself with nature is a radical act in itself. Yera invites you into this ecology, invites you to recognize that you are but a small part of the whole and that you need to work with the cycles rather than against them. Yera is a rune of fecundity. I associate this rune with uh, Freyr, Freya, and the Vanir. I've talked about them a bit on this podcast, but not too much. Basic information, Freyr and Freya are not Aesir, they are Vanir, which is basically a different tribe of gods. As the Voluspa tells it, the war between the Vanir and the Aesir was settled after both sides agreed to send people to basically live with the other side. Not exactly a hostage situation, but more like a peace offering in the form of people. Or gods, in this case. Freyre, Freya, and Njord are the three of the Vanir that come to live among the Aesir. In speaking with a lot of different heathens, they have described the Vanir as being closer to nature deities. More about receiving good graces from the land, perhaps closer to the elves and other spirits. I like to think of the Vanir as being closer to the feeling self. The Aesir tend to be more closely related to human matters and the thinking brain. I spoke briefly about Njord the last week on the podcast. He is the god of the sea, but specifically he is the god of our relationship with the sea. Freyr and Freya are also deities associated with nature, though I would say that Freyr is even more associated with nature than Freya is. Freya acts almost as a feminine Odin. She wanders the realms, she is a magical practitioner, she even teaches Odin many of his significant magical skills. She is the thrice-burned Golveg, presenting wisdom and knowledge where she goes in the metaphorical form of gold. Freyr tends to be associated with agriculture and plant life. His hall is in Alfheim, so many see him as the Lord of the Elves or related to those mythical beings in some way. Freyr is not just associated with the forest and wilderness, but also with plants as they grow in agriculture. 
In this way, he has some similarities with Thor, actually. Yes, Thor is the god of thunder, and his main job seems to be to protect the Aesir in the mythology. But you will find him associated with farming a lot more in folk practice. Um, This is in part because he controls the weather, and you need good weather for good crops. Freyr is the other side of that, like the fertility within the soil. We know of him as a fertility god in large part because a lot of the depictions of early Freyr involve an icon with a large phallus. Abundance of the earth indeed. Literally sowing some seeds there. In fact, one of the most important holidays to honor Freyr happens during the fall harvest season, and it is a full season. Alpha bloat is coming up. It coincides with the full moon in what we now know as October. It is a time to honor Freyr for the harvest, but also to honor the ancestors who came before, particularly farming ancestors, particularly masculine ancestors. If you want to learn more about Alpha Bloat, go back and listen to the uh, October episode um, I did on it last year. I did a deep dive. So I want to tie this all back in with Yara. If the harvest is associated with Freyr and the Vanir, then Yara is also associated with these deities. It is not the only rune to have this association. Ingwaz is also famously associated with Freyr, though a slightly different face of Freyr. Yara is the full growth cycle, planting seeds, nurturing them as they grow into plants, harvesting, and ultimately putting the garden to bed to overwinter. Yara is a rune that can be your constant companion throughout the cycles of your life. A beautiful practice involving Yara and planting comes from Diana Paxson's Taking Up the Runes. I'll paraphrase a bit, but here is the magic she recommends. As you plant your garden, draw Yara in the dirt, sing over it, and pray for a good year. I will add you can strengthen the spell throughout the year by retracing Yara in the dirt. You could also trace it in different spots throughout the year to encourage the turning of the wheel and the steadfast support throughout a full growth cycle. This, of course, also means continuing to trace Yara in the field over the winter when you allow that field to lay fallow. Yara is one of those runes that feels like a warm embrace to me. It is one that can help you find the wisdom of change, but also understand what remains the same year after year. There are so many more things that I can talk about with this rune, but it's going to have to wait for another time and another medium. Until next time, stay weird. Thank you so much for listening to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm so honored to share these practices, conversations, and thoughts with you. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider supporting it on Patreon. The Patreon is designed as a learning and sharing space for fellow inclusive heathens to grow their practices. Every month we have a book club meeting, I share research notes, and episodes without the ads. If you would like to join, you can do so at patreon.com slash heathensjourneypod. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, keep it weird.